1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
2: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson.
1: I'm Trisha Bobita, and later on the show, a super fly, super fresh nerd
2: confession. It is all that and a bag of chips. There's a lot of 90s nostalgia involved,
1: is what we're saying, about this nerd confession from one of you, dear listeners, that is
2: straight out of the 90s. But first, our special guest this week is Baratunde Thurston. He's one of those people who seems to just be doing all of the things. He's a comedian and an author. His book is called How to Be Black. Baratunde is also a supervising producer of digital
1: things at The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. When we talked with Baratunde on Skype from his office in New York, he told us that working with Trevor was almost lucky happenstance. It all started when he hosted a screener of a documentary about Trevor called You Laugh, But It's True.
3: This documentary was really my intro to Trevor's work. I'd not even heard of him before seeing it. Uh, My girlfriend was like, I think you'll dig this comedian. He's into being funny. And black and global, and that kind of reminds me of you. So we screened it and did a Q&A. I interviewed the director after. Trevor wasn't present, except in the film. But I really, really liked what I saw. And I'm like, this is someone whose life experience is tremendous and whose perspective is unique. This is well before he even was a contributor on The Daily Show. So I didn't want anything from him. <laughs> I was just like, this is a really cool dude. And we became mutual Twitter followers. We had some text message exchanges. So we hadn't actually met until the spring uh, of last year, almost a year ago is when we first met face to face. So I think the Comedy Central radar thing was already planted. Then he and I met after he had been announced as the new uh, head honcho and just started talking about what this could be and what he was looking for. And he kind of shocked me and said, like, hey, would you like to join the team and what would that look like and all kinds of. So then there were more meetings and then there were (laughs) meetings about meetings and then there was definitely drinks about meetings that we're going to have in the future. Drinks about
1: meetings. That sounds like the best part of that sentence. There you go. (laughs) (laughs)
3: And uh, and I said yes and they said yes and we got job married. And uh, (laughs) those are like the outlines of, of how this happened. I'm sure there were like things that happened that I don't know about. And there's probably a chip implanted in me. Yeah, they've got a low jack in, you know. But that's cool. It's for my protection. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs>
2: so, yeah. <laughs> that's the spirit. You know, there's something about that idea of a documentary called You Laugh, but it's true that really captures the significance of the role of satire in this day and age, yeah. I think.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's such a good window into what you just said, that role of satire and also this person he's got a fascinating story. It's, it's overwhelming.
1: What has surprised you most about his time at the show, your time at the show so far, either in terms of, you know, what it's like to actually work on that almost daily grind or the way the audience is reacting to the show so far.
3: I mean, the biggest surprise to me is very personal. I have a job and I have to show up at the same place every day and that's really different. I wrote a book and I traveled and I did stand-up and I did speeches and talked to colleges and went on TV and could just kind of fire missives off at will. It was a, it was a bit unordered, but it was coherent you know, and uh, highly flexible, especially when you add the LA mix into it. It's like, oh, yeah, I could just like, have a kale juice and a yoga at 1045 and go back <laughs> for my Slack Skype meeting or whatever, my <laughs> Google Hangout with my team. So the imposition of a schedule, of a rhythm, of regularity—that is, like I knew I wanted it, but I also knew it would sting a little—and it's both. And uh, I think I underestimated that transition, and uh, and then just the energy expenditure. You know, I think of myself as super motivated and energetic, and even with all that, like this is a serious commitment and a serious mission and uh man it just it can it can really wear you down and i think as a viewer you don't see it you know there's there's always things you see from the inside that you couldn't see from the outside because you were on the outside for me the the individual shift has been like oh wow this is a massive operation there's a bunch of people working here there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen every day and it's just kind of i just makes me have respect i think the one of the big words That I've kind of been reintroduced to, not that I don't experience it or express it with others, but just like, oh, man, there is a ton of choreography. And the dance is different every day, but everybody still manages to like ship a product every day. That's kind of miraculous because it's not just like a talk show where you're just like winging it constantly right and it doesn't have a consistent set of characters either that have this motivation that you extend their lives like oh they're gonna have sex with each other again but this time in this room in the white house like <laughs> and that's not to this the challenge of scripted writing or like free form talk radio but there's some hybridness where it's like sort of scripted but highly connected to the nonfiction world man i just i have a ton of respect having been here just about six months being like Yo, this is not easy. This is really significant work.
2: So you've been at The Daily Show for about six months now. That means you've probably been pretty well steeped in politics. What do you think of the presidential campaign?
3: Oh, what do you? whatever do you mean? I mean I think it's, <laughs> there's
1: like been no no news or anything interesting about no, it. We, so. have,
3: we have a ceremony. Uh, it's pretty rote, pretty predictable <laughs> stuff. Like two-party system, nominees fight it out, there's debates, people have like a high-minded policy discussion. There's occasionally like a little sideshow, but it's never the focus. The <laughs> voters into those booths with the greatest hopes uh, rather than fears at the forefront of the decision-making process, the <laughs> algorithms. That we've done this time and time again. So I just think like I, I look forward to maybe 2020 when things get interesting. But yeah, I just think it's like another just another election in America, <laughs> y'all. Just, just another <laughs> show. Uh, no, this is an amazing time. It's been really fascinating to watch – the nation kind of starting with traditional media punditry and trickling down to everybody else. I think there's a ton of people kind of in the weeds and the streets on the ground in the country who felt like something's, something's different. But up in the, in the clouds on air and in, you know, formal circles of power, it's like, yeah, it's just another election. And there's been this tug of war for like, what's really going on. And, And Donald Trump obviously represents a big version of that, which is like, oh, he's a a joke candidate. It's a summer fling. Oh, he'll be out by September, October, November, maybe 2024 now is when we will last hear of Donald Trump and presidency together, depending on how how this stuff pans out. Because there's just such, there's such anger. And it's like the veil has been lifted and people are seeing the matrix a little bit and they're like, oh, right. It is kind of rigged though. And, (laughs) and and whether that feeling is anchored in like truly rational fact-based assessments does not matter the feeling is real and you know bernie sanders is grabbing a bunch of it on the left mm-hmm. and he's right about so many things and it's it's impossible to deny you see hillary shifting significantly her rhetoric like her campaign has like a message now that's way clearer than it was before sanders entered the race and obviously on the right you got this this release of so much tension whether it's the Republican party having played games for so long with race baiting and overpromising and you got the tea party stuff you got the traditional media clashing with social media and people who weren't heard before now being heard and you got this candidate who is like such an anomaly cuz he he doesn't really need the system like he knows how to use the system and he can create news whenever he wants and he's wildly interesting. He's horrifying too, but he's interesting. And I think it's there's such a contrast with the prepared remarks of a senator or a governor and whatever the hell Donald Trump is up to. <laughs> and so in the age of like an unending stream of content and so many Netflix series and like, oh, did you check out the latest episode of Billions? No, I'm looking at American Crime. Well, I'm on that two broke girls. Well, I'm really into Broad City. Like we are super saturated with content. And to get attention requires Uh, even more special kind of jujitsu and trump is expressing that and tapping into that new reality way faster than most others are
2: that's an interesting way of looking at it i feel like it's exactly what we deserve right it's like we have literally (laughs) brought this upon ourselves
3: we have and we're in this decentralization of everything it's a long cycle of that uh, which is kind of resetting the world and the music industry was one of our first clear examples where it's like, oh, okay, Napster took down the way music happened. It used to be this top-down thing, where it's like a few A&R reps decided this band is dope, and then the labels would get behind it. You told the public what they wanted, and they kind of had to accept it because they didn't know anything else was possible. So th- you limit their choices, you determine outcomes. Banks do it with the way money works. Our political system has done it with the way our political options are, are laid out before us. Software development in general, the free software movement has totally changed like how software happens and cloud-based computing. So there's this decentralizing theme everywhere. You see it in terrorist groups like ISIS, and you see it in SoundCloud and the way music is distributed. You see it in Twitter and the way argument and political discourse happens. And the political establishment is an incumbent, just like the phone company was an incumbent, just like the record labels were incumbents. And if you are in any incumbent institution, the people are coming. The edge is, is becoming the center, and then power is being redistributed in all these models because it's basically the same top-down model. And then the Republican Party, in stark relief, is realizing like, oh, our top-down perspective is totally at odds with the bottom-up reality. So that's where I think what we're witnessing isn't just a crazy political cycle. I think it's part of the larger trend – of decentralization of power, people being able to coordinate with each other in this peer-to-peer fashion, and incumbent institutions having to recognize willingly or through a fight that the world
0: has changed. Listen if you're missing, y'all.
1: Still to come more with Baratunde Thurston, including a look back at his black questionnaire from the book How to Be Black.
2: And we have a nerd confession that is not only rife with 90s nostalgia, it's about what happens when you meet one of your favorite celebrities and they maybe think you're kind of insane. Gotta give, us what, we want. Uh. Gotta give
3: us what we need. Hey. <laughs> Our of is of death. We, we got, got to fight the, the power, hey. Fight
2: the power! Hey. Fight the power! Hey. Fight the power. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. Let's get back to our conversation with Baratunde Thurston. As we mentioned, he's the author of a book called How to Be Black, which is mostly autobiography, but also part how-to guide.
3: The book is largely a memoir focused on my kind of racial experience of being black in the U.S., and then it's colored with these how-to lessons learned along the way. And much of my experience has been, it's kind of a hybrid experience of being in some ways Growing up in D.C. in the 80s under a crackhead mayor with a single mother and a father who was killed allegedly in a drug deal, there's like this typical urban experience kind of thing that America has seen a lot of. It's like, oh, it's the hood story, and and we kind of recognize that. Then there's the Afrocentric level, having this name Baratunde, which is Nigerian, but my family is most certainly not. And that's just my mother's politics being infused in me and kind of reconnecting uh, a bridge to the the motherland, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's having this excessively expensive and high-quality education that I've been privileged to have, having gone to Harvard University and the Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., and being one of the few black people in those spaces. So that that mix created a kind of unique perspective at the time. I thought uh, Harper agreed. They're like, yeah, let's do a book. Great, we did it. The questionnaire is the framework with which the book was written in part. And it's I assembled a panel of people to help address this topic of how to be black. One person offering that is ridiculous, but seven people is slightly less so. And I put together this panel three black men, three black women, and one white Canadian man as kind of a racial control group. Some of those questions (laughs) to that whole panel, everybody got the same one. When did you first realize you were black or or white in the case of Mr. Canada? Uh, It was Christian Lander who did stuff white people like, how black Mm -hmm. are you? Have you ever wanted to not be black? Can you swim? (laughs) <laughs> um, how's that post-racial thing working out? And people had answers that were entertaining and uh, heart-wrenching in some cases. Stories of ridicule at swimming pools, stories of ostracization and exile by their own black communities for not being black enough. And a reality check on America. And this book came out in 2012 when a significant slice of the country was under the delusion that inaugurating a Black person would inoculate a nation against the pain of its racist past. And I think we all are very well aware now that has not happened. So, yeah, this book sits in that space. And the questionnaire was a a fun way to get at some serious stuff.
2: Well, and that seems to me, too, to be the point of about race, right? I mean, so much of the work you're doing is around having those uncomfortable conversations.
3: Yeah, no, the uncomfortable things can be approached, maybe made slightly less uncomfortable with humor, with laughter, and with satire, which does not always lead to laughter. It sometimes stings more than it provides joy. None of us is just one thing. The podcast that you're talking about, About Race, is called Our National Conversation About Conversations About Race. That <laughs> I started up with a white man named Tanner Colby, who wrote the book, Some of My Best Friends Are Black, and the Latina woman, Raquel Cepeda, who wrote Bird of Paradise, How It Became Latina and the three of us decided to have a non-binary conversation about race as it's so often black and white that's the default setting in america is black versus white but the reality is the machinery is way more complicated and the uh, the operating systems way more nuanced and so to have this kind of three-legged stool of discussion and we've had guests rotating in and out of each of our chairs so we're kind of the founders of it but i think there's a larger community of co-discussants who want to come to this common table and chop it up on kind of broader topics and more timely things about what just happened. We did a pilot season of that podcast. I think it was probably 18 episodes. And each one is paired with a B-side where it's all about engaging with audience input and people record messages, questions, complaints, and we play those and kind of respond to them. So we're, we're redeveloping the show for a season two and keeping my fingers crossed for the season two to get even better. I
1: love the idea of a B-side to a podcast because I think, <laughs> the, you know, it, it's really easy in this medium to just talk into microphones and then think you've finished doing your job. But my favorite shows are always ones where there's a connection to the audience like you're talking about because I think it. this medium does allow for a longer form conversation than, you know, you can do something brilliantly on TV or in other mediums, but you can't, I don't think, dig in as, as deep as you can in a podcast. So I, it's really fun to listen to those first shows. Not, not fun maybe isn't even the right word, but it's fulfilling to it's listen to the episodes of those shows because it goes a little deeper than I'm used to hearing those conversations go in other forms of media for sure. What would you want in redeveloping that season two? Like what are the things you still think we need to be talking about more that you think that, that about race or other work that you're doing can get at? Where Where is the conversation still, you know, the farthest apart from understanding?
3: Man, I mean, I think one of the strongest twists and hooks is the inclusion of non-black, non-white. And, you know, the Oscars just happened recently, and there was a huge to-do about it being so white. Chris Rock did an amazing job, I think, of injecting black back into the Oscars with his video extras, with his opening monologue. However, it was all black in terms of kind of like the remedy and the source of the complaint Mm. and it wasn't asian south or east it wasn't latino and i think there's a real opportunity and a hunger and a need for us to kind of expand who's in the ring by default not like oh yeah and also asians but like make that an inclusive thing because the country is moving so fast and the latino population growing at a super high rate. The Asian population in certain parts of this country is like really coming up. And representation is so important. And I would hate for black people to repeat the narrow-minded view that we were kind of victimized by in terms of whiteness in this country. And so as we come up and fight, like bringing others with us, and vice versa. It's not just like, oh, black people, you need to be better at being inclusive. I think everybody needs to be better at being inclusive W. Kamau Bell, who's a friend and one of my black panel members in How to Be Black and a former host of Totally Biased on FX that he hosted there and created that show, he had one of the most profound contributions to How to Be Black. And I asked this question of all my my panelists, what would you like to see for the future of race in America? And he said, I want to see a world where everybody is forced to work for the group one over from them and basically just like rotate the dial. (laughs) So gay people, you got to fight. For immigrants, immigrants, you gotta fight for women, women, you gotta fight for black people, black people, you gotta fight for uh, LGBT, like our transgender. Like, there is just a level of empathy required, you know, walking in someone else's shoes, acknowledgement, compassion, and that starts with who gets mentioned, who gets invited to speak. And then connected to that is the intersection of all these issues with each other, the intersectionalities. None of us is just one thing. And that was part of my goal in expressing through this book how to be black. It's like there is no one way to be black and being black is affected by other aspects of your geography, your, your, your major in college, your sexuality, your family structure. And to the extent that, you know, I think the world is starting to get more complex in acknowledging how complex it's always been. Thanks to Baratunde
1: Thurston for joining us. Be sure to check out his podcast about race, his book, How to Be Black,
2: and follow him on Twitter at Baratunde. Just ahead, I know I say this every time, but I think this might just be the best yet nerd confession. (laughs) Right here on Nerdette. Listening to Nerdette. Time now for a very delightful nerd confession. Trisha, we haven't heard one of these in a while. Do you want to kind of set up the premise before we listen?
1: Sure. So we have been asking you, dear listeners, to join us in raising your nerd flag proudly and high and letting us know about the times in your life when your extreme enthusiasm for something maybe had unintended results. (laughs) They could be good, they could be bad, this could be something you're really proud of or a time when something kind of went terribly wrong in your life. But we wanted to hear these stories, these nerd confessions from all of you, and this is one of the very best ones we've heard from you so far.
4: Back in, I don't know, the 90s, this movie, uh, McHale's Navy, came out and I was having a hamburger at a Planet Hollywood, and Tom Arnold and David Alan Greer were there. And they were doing a little meet and greet, signing posters, that kind of thing. David Alan Greer, are you kidding me? I was a huge comedy nerd. So I went through the line, and I got up to him, and I thought I was being super cool, because there was this movie that I had on VHS called Amazon Women on the Moon, and he had this bit part in it, just a, just a little bit, but I thought I was being so cool. So I looked at him, and I said, blame it on the bossa nova
3: blame it on the bossa nova which is
4: this little bit that he did in there and he looked at me and he said oh and then tom arnold whispered in his ear is that something from like uh in living color or what and he kind of leaned back, and looking at me, smiling, I heard him say to Tom Arnold, I have no idea.
3: And how did you feel one no, prejudice was obsolete? And all mankind danced to the exact beat. And at night, it was safe to walk down the street.
4: And I was, like, super embarrassed. So I went back with my poster, went back to my hamburger. And I'm thinking, I know he was in Amazon Women on the Moon. I know it. So <laughs> I went to a pay phone in Planet Hollywood, and I looked up the phone number for a uh, Blockbuster video. And I called him. Thank you for calling Blockbuster. How may I help you? And I said, can you guys look up Amazon Women on the Moon? What? Amazon Women on the Moon? <sighs> can you guys check for Amazon Women on the Moon? And they went and got it. And I, and I said, is David Allen Greer in that? And they were like, yeah. Yeah, he's in this. And I was like, I knew it. So I hung up the phone, and I got back in the line. I'm embarrassed. This is embarrassing saying this, but I did it. I got back in the line, went through the line again, came up to him, and he was like, "Hey, like, didn't I just see you?" And I said, "Blame it on the Bossa Nova, Amazon women on the moon." And he looked at me, and I didn't know what I was expecting. But he was like, "Oh," And and that was it. And then I walked away. Not my finest moment, especially for a comedy nerd standing in front of one of his comedy heroes. Oh, well. It's all right. I'm over it. Thank you for being there for me, you guys.
3: Blame it on the bossa Nova
0: With its magic spell
2: Trisha, I just want you to know I counted at minimum eight references to the 90s. You want to hear them? Yeah. We have Planet Hollywood. We have Tom Arnold. We have VHS, In Living Color, poster signings, payphones, phone books, and Blockbuster. How much easier would his life have been if he just had IMDb on his phone? But
1: I think it may have resulted in the same thing, except with indignant (laughs) phone screen sharing at David Allen Greer. That is a familiar voice to me. That is a nerd that I know and love very well, and I'm glad that they got that off their chest. I feel like (laughs) they can go forward in the world a little lighter with a little pep in their step
2: because they don't have that weighing them down anymore. I hope so. I feel like we've all been there, you know?
1: Indignantly wanting our heroes... (laughs) To know as much about themselves as we know about them. I've had that experience before.
2: Exactly. See? It's a thing.
1: It's a thing. And you
2: know, this is why nerd confessions exist, right?
1: Yeah. I think we all feel a little better now.
2: And I kind of am hungry for a Planet Hollywood hamburger. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who has sent us a nerd confession so far. You are delightful weirdos. I think my favorite subject line so far has been Street Fighter librarian. We're really excited to play that one for you, too.
1: If you want to send us a nerd confession, it's so easy. All you have to do is either call 312-600-5638 or, this is maybe even easier, record a voice memo on your smartphone. So you probably have some sort of voice recording app on your smartphone. Think about what you want to say for a second. Hit record. Put that phone up to your face like you're talking on the phone and then email us that audio. It's going to sound great. That's podcast at gmail.com. Trisha, can I give really quick homework before
2: we go? Yeah, sure. Zootopia. Yeah? The trailer was terrible. (laughs) The movie was really, really good. All right. I haven't seen it yet. I should go see it. It's actually, it's a cartoon about race relations. It's like actually important that people go see this movie. It's a cartoon about race? Yeah, man. (laughs) This is a new Disney movie, right? It's a new Disney movie, yeah. The voices are great. Idris Elba is in it, so is Jenny Slate, Jason Bateman, a lot of really good people. Oh, I like all those people. Yeah, totally. You should, you would, you'd really
1: like it. I feel like I'm typically the one who sees cartoons first, so I, I like know. that you saw this one before I did. Well, you know, now
2: that I've started dating, these are the things that happen.
1: Oh, yeah, you just see all movies. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> the show is produced by us, Trisha Bovita and Greta Johnson. Our interns are Maya Cole and Seaburn Mallard. Joe DeSou is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you are in fact already listening to us. But if you would take the plunge and subscribe or follow on NPR1, whatever it is, we would love to have you in the club. And if you want to get a gold star from
1: us, you have to give us some gold stars. It's a gold star informal economy. <laughs> <laughs> They're not redeemable anywhere except perhaps Planet Hollywood. All the gold stars this week go to Kate McLean, who says she loves Nerdette so much she listens to the show twice.
2: And if you listen to the show backwards, Kate, you can find out... Paul is dead. <laughs> that may be the most ridiculous thing we've done. No.
1: <laughs> Not hardly. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where you can find podcasts for nerds of all stripes, movie nerds to check out film spotting, music nerds should be listening to Sound Opinions, Find out more at wbez.org
2: slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. And sign up for our e-newsletter. Oh, yeah. How do they do that? They go to tinyletter.com slash nerdette. That's right.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer, Sundays, exclusively on Macs. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.